we are inordinately concerned about our bodies, but relatively unconcerned to cultivate the life of the mind. And we've seen that that is true. In fact, Guinness, years ago, tells of an incident that he had after a conference where he had given a lecture, and at the end of the lecture, people lined up to ask questions, and this woman came up to him and said, Mr. Guinness, I have a $64,000 question for you. And he braced himself. He thought this was going to be a really profound theological question that he couldn't answer. And she came and she asked him, she said to him, Mr. Guinness, what about your body? Guinness said he was taken aback by the question. But he was quick on his feet. He responded, Madam, I am English. What about your mind? <laughs> We're concerned about the body. But scripture places great emphasis on the life of the mind. That this is essential to the Christian life. The Christian thinking. And we see this in the book of Colossians. We see this in chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writes to a congregation facing challenges. The challenge of syncretism. The blending of Christian teaching with false teaching. It was a mixture of Jewish mysticism. People were pushing Jewish mysticism. Others were bringing in pagan philosophies to mingle and to mix with their Christian heritage. And the Apostle Paul warns them against this. In chapter 2, especially in verses 6 and following, the writer tells them to continue in the things that they had already learned. They were not to depart. They were not to be taken captive by false teachings, by philosophy, fraudulent philosophy. In verse 8, he says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Beware of that empty philosophy that was being propagated amongst them. And in warning them to be on their guard against this empty philosophy, this vain philosophy, he goes on to remind them that they, they had all that they needed in Christ because all fullness lies in Jesus Christ. In verse 9, for in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus Christ, therefore, possesses all the fullness of divinity. And he will go on to verse 15 to point out to them that because they are in Christ, they themselves are complete in him. That's what he makes the point in verse 10. They are complete. What it means, it means that they had everything that they needed for salvation and for the life of godliness. They had everything in Jesus Christ. For you are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and powers. So they did not need to listen to false philosophy and a call to submit to cosmic powers. He will go on to reveal in this passage that this Christ to whom they are united is of great benefit to them because they, he will make it clear, have died with him and have been raised with him. 
And the Christ with whom they are united is the one who has vanquished cosmic powers. We see this in verses 13 to 15. It is because then they are in Christ, in whom they have received salvation, and in whom they have received victory over the cosmic powers, that they are not then to seek to follow false teachers in order to live a life based on legalism, as we find in the chapter verses 16 to 23. They did not need to listen to the call to live an ascetic lifestyle, a life of austerity, a life of deprivation. They did not need to live a legalistic lifestyle as advocated by the false teachers because they are in Christ and their identity is in Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 3, based on the reality of what they have in Christ, he now tells them that they are to live a new way of life. He's going to tell them in chapter 3 that there are certain vices that they must put aside, verses 5 to 11, and that there are virtues that they are to put on in verses 12 to 17. But before he does that, he begins, before he tells them to put off the old life and to put on the new life, to put off the virtues or the, the life in sin and to put on the new life in Christ, he says to them, if then you were raised with Christ Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's important because you need to understand that verses 1 to 4 looks back, summarizes what has gone forth, but it also sets the tone for what comes afterwards. That is, before they're able to put to death the members of their bodies in verse 5, before they're able to put on these virtues in verse 12, they must, first of all, address this question of the mind. They must seek the things above. They must set their minds on things Above, They cannot live the Christian life, putting sin to death, exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit and the character of Christ, unless their minds are placed, set in the right place. But before he does that, before he tells them to set their minds on things above, things above he reminds them of the fundamental fact of their identification with Christ. He says, if then you were raised with Christ. If then you were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. This notion of identification of Christ was already discussed by the Apostle Paul in chapter 2. He already told them in chapter 2 verse 12. That they've identified with Christ by being buried with him in baptism. In which you were raised with him through faith. In the working of God who raised him from the dead. So he's identifying with them saying that they have shared in Christ's death and in Christ's resurrection. And because he's already said this, he says, if then you were raised with Christ. He's not suggesting that they were not raised. He's not questioning that they were raised. He's saying, if then or since, since you were raised with Christ. That you have been joined to him. You have shared in his resurrection. Set your minds on things above. Seek the things that are above. 
is of great interest to note how Paul views salvation. Because here in Colossians, going back to the, the first chapter, the Apostle Paul views salvation as, in, as in, an inviolable hope secured in heaven. You only have to go back to chapter 1, verse 5, where he tells them, or oh, the gospel came to them, and it came with this hope, he says, which is laid up for you in heaven, which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. There is this salvation consists of an inviolable hope, a hope that cannot be violated, it cannot be taken away. He views salvation in chapter 1 not only as an inviolable hope, but also as an inheritance. Because in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, the believers are to be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Salvation is viewed then as an inheritance, as a gift that God will give to his people at the end of the age, as an inheritance. But for, for Paul, salvation consists not only of an inheritance, but of identification with Christ. Believers have shared in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus. Now this is, frankly, a difficult concept to understand, the identification of the believer with Christ. Because the question is, how have we died with Christ? Surely, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, we weren't there, we weren't born. But in a sense, you see, in biblical terms, we died with Christ representatively. Because when the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, he brought us there. He was our head and our representative. And what occurred to him, in some sense, in an objective sense, occurred to us. Because, you see, we died in him. This notion, you know, of a federal headship is a, is, is a teaching that runs throughout the scriptures. You know, you, you may say, well, we did not die in Adam. You know, when Adam sinned, we did not sin. Because we weren't there. And if you're looking at that chronologically, that's true. But the Bible teaches this matter of headship. That we were in Adam. Adam was our head, our representative head. And so the things that Adam did, particularly his sin, became our sin because he was our representative. He was our federal head. And Christ comes as a second Adam. And therefore, his death on the cross is attributed to us as our death because we were in him. And his resurrection is attributed to us because we were in him when he rose from the dead. But our death and our resurrection, that is our identification with Christ, must not be viewed merely as objective, that is we are in Christ who represents us, and therefore the things that are true of him are attributed to us in this sense, his death and resurrection. But we died with Christ and we were raised with him subjectively, experientially. And the question is, when did it occur? We have an inclination of this in the book of Romans, in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 6. Where the Apostle Paul in verses 3 to 5 says, Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. But just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Now, it's interesting that Paul talks about us has been died with Christ and buried with him. 
but he doesn't de definitively say we were raised with him. But if you notice the text here where he says that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so that we should also walk in units of life, there it is implying our resurrection. So when we, did we die with Christ? When we were raised with him? C.B. Cranfield says that we could talk about our identification with Christ in his death and resurrection in four senses, four ways. He says, we died and rose with Christ in a judicial sense. That is, when Christ died on the cross for us and took our sins, we also shared in that death. He paid for our sins and it was done for us. And so we died in him and rose with him. He said, secondly, we, we died and rose with Christ in a baptismal sense. And I think what he's doing here, he's, he's referring to this passage here, particularly in Romans chapter 6. He will go on to say we died with him in a eschatological sense and a moral sense. One day we will finally be dead to sin and we died in a moral sense in a sense that now we can live an upright and godly life. But we died with Christ and we rose with him not precisely in baptism but what baptism represents. You see when we were baptized we were immersed in water. It was a symbol of our death with Christ. When we were raised up from the water, it signaled that we were raised with Christ. But it is not in baptism itself that we died with Christ and we rose with him. It is in conversion. And you see, baptism is a picture of conversion. Baptism is a picture of conversion because it is in conversion when we were turned away from our sins, when we were given new life. That is when we died with Christ. And all Christians are identified with Christ, are joined with Christ, and share in his death and resurrection when we were saved, when we were converted by the Spirit, when we were quickened, given new life, regenerated, and we were changed in our hearts, the Spirit of God joined us to Christ, and therefore his death became our death, and his resurrection became our resurrection. Paul begins, he says, if you were raised with Christ, raised with Christ then in your actual salvation, in your conversion, he says, because of this, because you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. So he begins with our identification. We're joined with Christ. We are raised with him. It becomes then the basis for the call to seek the things above. He's calling upon them to develop a Christian mindset. He begins with seek. It's a strong verb. We find this kind of language used in the New Testament, even by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, he says, shall be added unto you. We find in John 5, 44, how can you believe? who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. This is our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the Jews. Here Paul takes this language. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. And the question is, what does it mean to seek the things that are above? There are those who would argue that to seek the things that are above has an, es well, an ethical, at least, nuance. Because if you read what follows afterwards, the things that he, he 
commands them to do, to avoid, to put to death, and to put on. These are ethical. And so seeking the things that are above involves an ethical life, a life that is pleasing to God. But he's calling upon them to seek the things that are above in the transcendent sphere, in the spiritual sphere. They're calling, he's a calling in general terms to seek deliberately and daily to commit themselves to heavenly things, that is, to the values of the heavenly kingdom and to live their lives by those values. It means that their whole aim and ambition, their entire outlook on life must be focused on spiritual heavenly things. They're speaking still in general terms. Seek the things that are above. But this command to seek heavenly things is repeated, is repeated in verse 2. Set your minds on things above and not on things upon the earth. They are to seek the things that are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Now he says, set your minds on things above. But he's not saying something different. Seeking the things above is done by bringing the mind to think on heavenly things. It's a shifting from the earthly perspective. It is occupying one's mind, one's thoughts with heavenly and spiritual things. That one's affection... One's desires must be set on the things that are ultimately of importance. The things that are transcendent, the things that are godly, the things that belong to God. But still, we, we have not come to the knob of the issue. Because it is still, yes, spiritual, it's yet vague. But I want to suggest to you that to seek the things that are above... To set the minds on things that are above can only be clarified by reading what the writer says. What does it precisely mean? Well, go back to verse 1 where he says, Seek those things which are above. And then he says this most important phrase. Where Christ is. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. You see, to seek the things that are above is to ultimately seek Christ. The heavenly things of which he's speaking are the things that are related to Jesus Christ. The false teachers were themselves focused on heavenly spiritual reality. How do I know that? Because if you go back to chapter 2, verse 18, he's warning them against false teachers. He says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. You see, the, the false teachers were telling them that they were to set their minds on heavenly things. They were to be worshiping angels, cosmic powers, cosmic rulers like angels. So what's the difference? 
you know, the false teachers are telling them, set your minds on things above. You need to be worshiping angels. They are more powerful than you are. They rule over us. Paul is coming along and saying, set your minds on things above. Well, is he saying the same thing? No. Because while they are saying that, they, that, that believers ought to be worshiping cosmic power, Paul is saying to them, they must set their minds on heavenly things precisely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It is upon Christ that they must set their minds. It is Christ that they must be seeking in all their thoughts and in all their attention. They must set their minds upon Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. It means then that all of their aims and their ambition must be directed to the sphere where Christ is. That all of their preoccupations, all of their mindset must be brought to bear upon Jesus Christ and precisely upon him. You see, he says, where he is seated at the right hand of God. It means that to set one's mind upon, upon heavenly things, it is to set one's mind upon Christ. First, upon his values. You see that because in the rest of the chapter, he's going to tell them about godly, biblical, spiritual, Christian, Christ-like values. To set their minds upon, upon the things above his mind, upon Christ. Not upon, upon his values, but upon his reign. Because you see, Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the Father. He's in the place of all rule, of all reign. Their minds and their thoughts must be captivated by Christ. By his rule and by his will. And by the life which is to come of which Christ is supreme. Set your minds on things above. And not of things on the earth. Not living for the material. Not being preoccupied with the things of this life. Set your minds on things above. I want to say a few things about this. Call to seek things above and to set your mind on things above. First, we must understand that this is compulsory. What we have in these two verbs here in verses 1 and 2, are not invitations. They are not encouragements, for that's too weak. They are not suggestions. They are the imperative. They are commands. Since you were raised with Christ, seek. It calls for deliberate Effort. Set your minds on things above. That we have a responsibility, a duty to bring our thoughts into captivity to Christ. To think about heavenly things. It's a call then. It's compulsory. This activity is compulsory. Secondly, this activity is communal. It is not that he is saying that some super Christians, some special class of spiritual Christians are to set their minds and things about but the rest of us who are carnal. Although I do have a problem with this notion of a carnal Christian because it's an oxymoron. But super Christians should set their minds in heaven and carnal Christians and the rest of us, well, not really, not so much. That's not what he's saying. You see, it is compulsory and it's compulsory for all believers, all of us. You notice when he says, 
if then you were raised. The you there is plural. It's referring to the church. Seek those things. It's you, plural. Set your mind. It's you, plural. All Christians then. It is communal, not for a special group. Not some, not few, who are to access the heavenly realm with their thinking, but all who have been raised with Christ, all who have faith in him. This call must not be seen as compulsory and communal. It must be also seen as continual. Because the verbs in the imperative are also present tense. Seek. In other words, he's saying, go on seeking. Go on setting your minds on things above and not on things on the earth. But why are they to do that? Well, he says in verse 3, set your minds on things above and not on things of the earth, or you died. Again, he references the union with Christ. He says, for you died. He already says in verse 1, for you were raised with Christ. Now he says, for you died. You died with Christ when you were converted. You died to the old life. The spirit of God broke the power of sin over your life. You, you died. And your life, he says, is hidden with Christ in God. What a powerful statement. Why? Why are they to seek the things about? Because their lives are bound up with Christ in a hidden way. Their lives are hidden with Christ. It, it, it suggests that, they, that their lives, their spiritual lives, are awaiting the final consummation. It is hidden in Christ. But I would suggest to you at the heart of this expression, for your life is hidden with Christ in God, speaks of the security of the believer's life. Of their spiritual life. We are told that we have been raised with Christ. Our lives, spiritual lives are in Jesus Christ. He is the basis of our spiritual life. And because he is in heaven. Our lives are with Christ in heaven. It speaks then of the security of the Christian life. Our lives are hidden. Are kept safe are preserved in Jesus Christ. This, our spiritual life then lies not so much in ourselves but in Christ. Christ is the basis of our eternal life. In other words, we share his life because we are joined to him by the Spirit. And, and you notice the kind of double security we have because he says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Lives are in Jesus Christ, so they are secure. But Jesus Christ is in God. There is a sense then that we are secured by the Lord Jesus Christ and by God the Father. You see something about it in John chapter 10 when Jesus says, you know, those I give eternal life, no man can snatch them from my hand. And then he says, my Father, in whose hands they are, is greater than all. So we are being preserved by God the Father and by God the Son. But we know we are being preserved by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So it's a triune God who preserves us. But this is, in fact, wonderful. He says, the reason we are to seek the things above is not only because we are identified with Christ, but our lives are hidden with Christ in God. When Jesus Christ, Paul tells us, was raised from the dead, we were also raised with him. And our lives are hidden with Christ, are kept safe, are preserved in Jesus Christ.
but he gives another reason. He tells us in verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The reason we are to seek heavenly things, it is because we are joined to Jesus Christ. Because our lives are secured in him. And thirdly, because we will share glory with him. We must set our minds on Christ who is in heaven because that's where our home is. When Christ who is our life. You notice how he says Christ is our life? The Christian has no spiritual life, no eternal life apart from Jesus. Jesus Christ is our life. He is the source, the basis of our lives. It is his life that we now share. His eternal life, his resurrection life that pulsates within us. And he says, notice, when Christ, who is our life, appears. When Christ, meaning that there's a certainty to the coming of Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, there will be a great revelation. A great unveiling of Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory he's talking about our destiny he's saying the source of our life in Christ our life is hidden with Christ but our destiny is to be with Christ we're setting our minds on heavenly things on the life to come because that's where our destiny lies when Christ who is our life appears then we shall appear with him. You can only read in Revelation 1.7. When Revelation, it speaks about Christ's coming as a physical, bodily coming. Behold, he's coming with clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierce him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. No, no, no. No spiritual coming. No ethereal coming. A real, visible, tangible, audible return of Christ is going to come with great noise. That even the very dead will be raised. You know, there are some people, you know, who can sleep through a hurricane. You know, the earth will reel and stagger and, I mean... There are some people have been in tornadoes tor 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 where, where the house has been taken up and lifted off and they're still in their bed sleeping. Not even that wakes them. But it do doesn't matter how deeply you sleep. This one, this coming of Christ will raise the dead. He's coming visibly and audibly and physically. And those who are in him will also appear with him in glory. I, I want you to understand, I want you to understand and take note of what he says here. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also, you who were raised with him, you who died with him, you will appear with him in glory. What does that mean? It means that we will appear with him in a glorified state. We will be free from sin. We'll be shining like the star. We will be glorified saints. And what is he saying then? He's saying... You ought to seek the heavenly things because your life is hidden with Christ who is in God. And because there's a day coming when Christ will appear and you will appear with him in glory. Christ will appear glorified, blazing like light, and we 
we will be like mirrors, reflection of Jesus Christ, also sharing that glory. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on heavenly things because your lives are securely hidden in Christ with God. And your destiny is to share the glory of God. Well, my friends, this is our task. To bring to bear our minds on heavenly spiritual things. There's a tendency to live this life thinking only of tomorrow. Thinking only of what we eat and drink. We are often earthly minded, not heavenly minded. We are consumed about this world. We're consumed with the things that sustain the physical life, though necessary. These are not the essentials. But we are being refocused to bring the weight of our thinking to bear upon Jesus Christ, upon the things that are above. It calls for deliberate action, for a reorienting of our minds, a shifting of our values, a change in our mindset. We must bring every thought into captivity. Why? Why must we think on heavenly things? You see, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You see, where we set our minds, reveal what we value. You know what is of real importance to you by what you think about. If we spend our time thinking about retirement and about pension and about our children and about our careers, it's because these are most valuable. No, the writer said, set your mind. Bring the weight of your thinking upon spiritual things, upon heavenly things. You see, what we think about reflects our value. But secondly, we must set our minds on things above Because here lies the root of holiness and usefulness. The Christian life is essentially a life of the mind. Holiness and godliness begins in the mind, in the thinking. As a man thinks, so is he. One of the problems that we have is we're trying to live a godly life. But it's not rooted in the mind, what the Bible calls a heart. That holiness and godliness come from within, from the mind. And if we are minding earthly things, we can never live a godly life. The, the, the Paul says, be he transformed. Be he changed. But how, does, how, how do we change? How do we live the godly God, God life? Be he transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's a different mindset that appreciates and values God, that loves God's commandment, that thinks that they are true and good and beneficial. You see, you must be changed, but it begins with your thinking. We must set our minds on things above, because where our minds are reveal what we value. We must set our minds on things above, because here is a life of holiness. It's rooted in the mind, in in the heart. It is also the basis of usefulness. Do you know, We've heard about that person who is so heavenly minded, he is no earthly good. Well, I must confess I've never met such a man or woman. I've never met a person who is so heavenly minded that they are 
no earthly good. That's like asking, have you ever met an alien? They don't exist. I mean, aliens do exist in the sense that you and I are aliens. You don't necessarily like the thought, but I, I am being biblical. You walk, walk around and say, I'm an alien. Well, okay, maybe you would not do that, but, but the Apostle Peter says that. We are strangers and aliens. Are those little creatures in space craft and so on that comes out in Arizona desert at night? Don't exist. And that, that, that creature, that mythical creature, who is all heavenly minded and no earthly good, doesn't exist. You see, the one whose mind is set on things above is earthly good, is heavenly minded and also earthly good. Because it is of note that following these verses here, verses 1 to 4 here in Colossians chapter 3, Paul begins to talk about vices that disrupt the fellowship. You just have to look at them. Put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, and so on. Put aside in verse 8, lying and anger and wrath and malice and filthy speak. Do not lie to one another. All of these the heavenly minded man is concerned about his conduct, not only in relation to himself and God, but to one another. Verse 12, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. In verse 14, above all things, put on love. You see, when you are heavenly minded, you are, you are, you are earthly good. You are most beneficial to the people around you. You want to live like Christ. You want to show Christ. You want to love. You want to care. You want to show gentleness and meekness. And if you read in the annuals of church history, the people who have been the godliest have been the most beneficial to humanity. They're the ones who built university and hospitals and took care of orphans. Because you see, they, they're living with a passion for the glory of God. You see, heavenly-minded people are people of value on earth. They are not bogged down by the things of this life, but they seek to live on earth to promote the cause of Christ for the glory of Christ. There was no man who was more godly than Jesus Christ. If there was anyone who was heavenly minded, it was Jesus. But what did Peter say? That he went about doing good. He went about doing good. Everywhere he went, he was healing the sick. He was raising the dead. He was casting out demons. He was feeding the hungry. Oh, he went about doing good. You see, when you set your minds on things above, you become concerned about the life of others. And you pour your lives into serving others for the cause of Jesus Christ. You must set your minds on things above, not only because here lies the life of holiness and usefulness, but you must set your minds on things above because that is where Christ is. This is what our text says. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is. John Bally tells a story of an old man who was dying and 
he asked his doctor if he knew what awaited him after death. He wanted to know what lies beyond the grave. And before the doctor could respond, he heard a scratching on the door of the room in which he was caring for the patient. And it, this, this scratching on the door gave him the answer. And he said to the man, the patient on the bed, he said, do you hear that? He said, that's my dog. I left him downstairs, but he grew impatient. And coming up the stairs, he heard my voice. He has no notion of what lies inside this door. But he knows one thing. He knows that I am here. He says to the patient, do you know what lies beyond the door? Do you know what lies behind the door? Do you know that your master is there? We see dimly as through a glass. There is much even when we have read Revelation that we do not know of the life to come. Revelation by and large is an approximation. I saw street like gold. Like what John is saying is what I saw defies human language. The best I can do are with these earthly treasures. It's not it. It's like it. We see dimly through a glass, but then face to face. We set our minds on things above, on heavenly things, because that's where Christ is. Because our master is there. Because heaven is heaven. Because Christ is there. We, we may go on trips abroad and spend weeks and even months hearing the sounds of a strange place, eating the delicacies of that land, enjoying the sights. But after a while, you start longing for home. If you are with your mom and dad, well, there's no cooking like mom's cooking. And if you're away from your spouse, there's no cooking like your wife's cooking. You just want to be in your old bed. You just want to have your friends around you. You want to go home. And we set our minds on things above because that's where our home is. Because that's where Christ is. And we long for heaven because we long to be with Christ. And Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to close by saying that if we are to be people whose minds are filled up with Christ, the heavenly things, his rule, his way, his virtues, his characteristics, his will for life. We need minds that are controlled by the Spirit. In reading in Romans 8 verse 5, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. Nobody can be a carnal minded Christian and go to heaven because carnal minded fleshly thinking leads to death. 
To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What I'm arguing is that we cannot set our minds on things above unless our minds, our very beings, are under the control of the spirit. We must be spiritual people, people who have been given new minds, new hearts, and are being led and directed by the spirit. So to set our minds upon the spirit, we need to be spiritual people. We need to be changed by the Spirit, to be indwelt by the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit. Because the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. You need a new heart. You must be changed. You need the indwelling Holy Spirit to be living within you so that he can set your minds on heavenly things. And so we must ask the Spirit of God to control our minds. We must ask the Spirit of God to help us to refocus our gaze on that which is heavenly and spiritual ultimately upon Christ. But there is more that we can do. You see, you cannot set your minds upon Christ and heavenly things without setting your mind upon his word. There can be no thinking about Jesus Christ, no thinking about heavenly things that is not informed by Scripture. We aren't to just go around gazing up in the sky. The man who is setting his heart and mind on heavenly things will have his eyes and his heart in the word of God. Because it is in scripture that Christ is revealed to us. It is in scripture that heaven is revealed. That the spirit of God does not lead us into the things of Jesus Christ apart from the word of God. How do we set our minds on things above? By reading God's word. By devouring scripture. By giving ourselves to the preaching of the word of God. We live in a day and age of biblical illiteracy. You ask the average Christian, what's the book of Romans about? It'd be a good thing if they can find it. Much less tell you what it is about. We need the mind that is set in heaven. It's a biblical mind. A mind that is immersed in scripture. We, we are living in a generation where we are most blessed. I mean, we have apps for everything. We now have apps on our phones. In fact, we have apps where our Bibles can talk to us. You, you, you can go in your car and press an app and you hear a scripture being read. I mean, we have no excuse not to be reading the scripture, not to be devouring the word of God. You want to set your mind to think about such a mind on God's word. Because the Spirit of God only guides us and leads us into spiritual truth by his word. May God grant us that we may be a people whose minds are being steeped and soaked in the word of God. For only as we are steeped and soaked in the word of God will our minds be set upon Christ and the life to come for his sake.